I'm going to beg your patience this morning. It's been four weeks since I've stood behind this pulpit. Hopefully I remember what to do. This morning we're talking about a matter of life and death. Turn to John 11, 1 through 28. That's where we'll be. We're back in the Gospel of John. We're continuing on in the footsteps of Christ and learning and looking and seeing how it is that we can examine the life of Jesus Christ so that we may believe. The book of John is written so that we may believe. And you're going to see this statement over and over today. Today is the initial part of two sermons. So make sure you come next week to hear the second part where Lazarus is actually raised from the dead. Now, many of you know this story, right? Raise your hand if you've ever heard the story about Lazarus. I'm hoping that some of what we're looking at this morning is new for you. Now, one of the tricks of the trade up here is to make sure that you are incredibly impressed with my knowledge, my skills, my communication level, and coming up with magical new ways to look at an old story. Folks, I don't do that. I can't make up stuff. We stick to what the script says. But the script is magical. The script changes lives. And there may be a few new things for you this morning, but that will be because of application. And for those that have never heard this story, get ready. Strap in, buckle down, and get your pens and pencils a-flurrying quickly. How many of us are distracted by death? Any of us? Any of us distracted? You know, they say that there's two things in life that will be a certainty. What are those two things? Taxes and death. You guys sound like you just had a huge tax bill and you're going to die. All right, let's wake up around here. I thought it was death and the A's winning the World Series. That's just straight pandering, isn't it? Yes, they say death and taxes. It is amazing. What we do, the level we go to, to avoid death. I want you to think about this. We came off retreat last week, and we were asked an important question. And and my wife ribbed me. When we were actually up in the retreat, before we were about to get smoked out, we had a great time on Friday night, great session, and the question was asked, how many of you are ready to go to heaven right now? How many of you would do it in a moment, in a split second, without thinking, would you go right now? So I pose the same question to you. How many of you, if you could just push the button and go, you would go? How many of us are distracted by death? I didn't raise my hand, but my wife is just ribbing at me because she's, she, it drives her nuts. She's like, Don't you care about me? Don't you want to be with me? What about the children? I don't know. What about the children? They're good. They're doing well. You're here. It'll work out well. Probably better. How much does death dictate your thinking of daily life? Folks, we are so driven by not dying. Let me just check this. Let me just see if I'm making this up, okay? How many of us are currently on multiple medications so we don't die? All right? It's a... Oh, you don't have to raise your hands. Let's not confess this morning. All right? Because it's going to get dirty here in a second. All right? So we, uh, we spend trillions of dollars on medications, don't we? As a matter of fact, we get medications to counteract what other medications do. Also, we don't what? die. Number one thing that bothers me on this subject, seatbelts. I hate seatbelts. And it took about my fourth ticket over the span of 20 years to finally acquiesce. And I finally got a car that just constantly beeps at me and yells, put your seatbelt on. And I can't, I can't reroute. I can't. So now I'm wearing my seatbelt. I hate that law. If I want to go, I'm going to go. But you know what? It's the law, and I need to obey it. So for all you people that were wondering if your pastor obeys the law, I I try, and I I recommend it for all of you. Obey the law. But now, you know, if you ride a motorcycle, you have to what? You have to wear a helmet. And you 
probably should know how to ride a motorcycle too. We have all of these things to protect us. How many of you are on special diets? I told you it was going to get bad. How many of you... How, I dare you to raise your hand if you have done this. How many of us will take an egg and we separate out the what? The yolk. And we do all this stuff so that we get a heart-healthy omelet that tastes horrible! I mean, if they did a study of people who died from the horrible taste of the things that we're doing so we don't die, I think we'd be shocked. The things we do so we won't die. Folks, we're going to die. Just get used to it, right? You're going to die. Some great quotes on this. Let me show you some of these great quotes. Martin Luther loved this quote. He says, even in the best of health, we should have death always before our eyes so that we will not expect to remain on this earth forever, but we'll have one foot in the air, so to speak. Oh, I like that. One foot in the air, ready to go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Bavarian theologian. You didn't die, did you? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian who was captured by the Nazis because he dared to speak out against them when a lot of the churches wouldn't. And when the Allied forces were coming, they were knocking on the door just hours, may have been a day, before the Allies reached where he was imprisoned. He was shot and killed. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. Death is a supreme festival on the road to freedom. Is that how you and I look at death? Well, let's, let's ratchet it back a little. That's very intense, right? I'm quoting theologians. Sometimes we get some great advice from the mouths of children. There's a little story that a mother trying to soften the blow of a family cat's death, which is very appropriate in my book. Wow, that, let me start over because for you cat lovers, I just ruined the whole uh, anecdote. So a mother trying to soften the blow of the family cat's death told her daughter, Tabby is in heaven now. The little girl looked at her mother quizzically, then asked, why would God want a dead cat? <laughs> it's good perspective. It's really good perspective. This morning as we turn to the passage, when we're talking about death and the distraction of death, or the death dictates our living, I'm going to challenge you this morning to throw that away. Examine your life. Let's see why this happened. When we're going to look at the issue of life and death today, we're going to focus a lot on death. Who did it? All right? How many of you love a good whodunit mystery? All right, we're going to do a little investigation. CSI. Christ scene investigation. All right, so we're going to look, as you do as an investigator, you look for patterns to find out why things happen. So we're going to go with this whole pattern idea. This morning we're going to talk about the pattern for redemption. Then we're going to speak about a pattern of sacrifice. Then we're going to speak about a pattern of hope. And lastly, a pattern of life. As we get into the text this morning, I encourage you again, think, how does death have a hold on you? And how does it drive you? I challenge you that by the end of this morning, you might think a little differently. Therefore, giving you much more life. Much more life. We're going to read the first four verses from John 11. Let's look. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who appointed the Lord with, or anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What's happening here? Well, the, the obvious statement is this. When we're looking at the pattern, when we're looking at the pattern of redemption, you have to start with the last statement that Jesus makes. That the death and resurrection of Laz is for the glory of God 
and so that the Son of God would be glorified. All right? So think through that context, because that's going to shape everything in our investigation this morning. That this death, this particular death, happened because it was there to shape what? It was there to shape our redemption. It was for the glory of God. Now what does that mean? We have to unpack that a little bit. So let's, let's look back a little bit. I would propose this. We require crisis sometimes to get the point. Okay? We require crisis sometimes to get the point. Why is death necessary? Because of sin. Scripture talks about that. Death happened. It was not part of God's original purpose. But it's here now. But God has made a way for us to conquer over death because His Son did. And we're going to see a precursor of that through this miracle. The power of God to flip death on its head into life. The reason this miracle happens is to demonstrate to you and I that Jesus holds the power over death and life. And the death is something that's inevitable, but death should not shape our attitude or our heart. Unfortunately, you and I get so distracted, we get so immersed into our life that we won't hear from God. We're not searching after God. We're not seeking after God. And remember, Jesus is walking through Judea. He's walking through Samaria. He's walking through Jerusalem walking through the Galilee region for one purpose, and that is to bring the kingdom into existence. He's walking so that those around him might see the Son of God and have faith and believe in Him. And yet, many, regardless of the miracles that he's done, make excuses. They're skeptics. Yet, we've seen this statement over and over, many believed, many believed. I propose to you that the death of Lazarus happens, as Jesus says here, for redemption. Redemption of whom? Of those watching. Of those that were in the proximity because they weren't there yet. What about you this morning? Are you there yet? Are you listening? Are you seeking? Are you there yet? Because Jesus will go to the deepest lengths so that you'll pay attention. So that you will believe. That's why this happens. That's why this happens. Resurrection defines the power of God. It completes the victory over death. Let's look at these friends. This is fascinating. Have you ever wanted to be a friend of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? That if you lived at the time that He walked on earth, would you want to be in that inner circle of those disciples and those people that He knew? These people are outside of the disciples. These, these are friends. These are people that he deeply loved. They're all related. And somewhere in life they connected. And Jesus loves them. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And it's interesting, John is writing decades after this happens. And so he brings up this story so that we might what? We might believe. So he's chosen this story. Things are escalating. The Pharisees and the religious leaders in Jerusalem want to kill him, and we'll get into that in a minute. And so Jesus goes hardcore with a miracle. Why? Because there's still those who need to what? Believe. He did not spare his best friends. He used those he loved the most so that those who were at enem- that, that were enmity with him those that were His enemies might believe. Are you prepared to be used by God that way? You see, death will flip on its head when you look at it how Jesus looks at it. Jesus was very close to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They were close friends. John brings us even back to this idea in verse 2. He says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So he's helping us refer back to a story that we haven't even gotten to 
We're going to hear that a little bit later on. He's giving us a picture of some people that intersected with Christ. They send word to Jesus about their crisis, that Lazarus is sick. Do we do that? Why would they send word to Christ? They send word to Christ because they know He could do something. They know He has the power to make something happen. He can heal because He has healed. When you have crisis, when you have difficulty in your life, when I do, do I go to Christ first and ask Him because He has been faithful to do all those things? Do I go to Him and ask Him to take care of it? To do it? This is going to be fascinating in a minute. Let me ask you, what crisis in your life is drawing you closer to Christ? What is it in your life that's drawing you closer to Christ? Chances are fairly good that maybe He's using those crises so that you'll pay attention because He cares that much. He cares that much. But we refuse to listen sometimes. What tragedy is required so that you might consider the purpose of Jesus in your life? Jesus is relentless in His pursuit to help you and I. Understand that He wants to reconcile you unto Himself, unto the Father. It's interesting as we contemplate that idea that there's a pattern of this in Jesus' life, in how He ministers and how He operates. That if He truly wants to get your attention, He'll go to great lengths to do it. And we can look at issues like that, whether it's Elijah, whether it's Jonah, whether it's Lazarus. But does that really work? Or are we just speaking from the narrative? It's interesting, in Leadership Magazine, there's an article called To Verify by Peter Ebersole and Joan Joan Flores, and they did some data on this and surveyed this. So when it comes to the issue of learning from painful things, the percentage of people who said a painful event, death, illness, breakup, divorce, etc., caused them to find a more positive meaning in life, 87%. This is a pattern of redemption. If Christ wants you, He'll go to great lengths to get your attention. Are we paying attention? What crisis is going to require our attention? Secondly, a pattern of sacrifice. This was all done for your sake. This was done for your sake. Lazarus' death and resurrection was done for your sake. How? Well, let's look at it. Starting verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's odd. We'll talk about that. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are going to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, or in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Amazing. Do you know this about Thomas? Thomas is known as the what? The doubter. We'll get to this in a second. Jesus has a pattern of sacrifice in His ministry and even now. Because why? Because, verse 5, look. There's one key word here. Can you find it? Look at verse 5. What do you think it is? Love. 
Remember, John's writing this decades after the fact. Why would he stop to make a point of emphasis that Jesus loved these friends? Because that's why Jesus does what Jesus does. Because of love. Insurmountable, uncomparable, undeniable love. And as he goes to great lengths with a pattern of redemption for mankind, now he goes into great lengths for a pattern of sacrifice. Why? Because he loves them. And because he loves you and I. So the next action in verse 6 is just baffling, isn't it? I love you so much, I can heal you. You've requested that I would come, so I'm going to hang out for a couple days. Have you ever said to somebody who says, well, I love you? And you're thinking in your head, if you loved me, you would... Right? If you love me... Mary and Martha say, you would what? Come right now. As a matter of fact, you'd snap your fingers and do your little teleport you know, hoo-ha thing and get to where I need you. Because my brother's dying. It's not what Jesus does. Now, this is... Any of you confused yet? Because I was confused when I saw this. John says, and he wants you to understand, he loves them. Because he knows what he's about to say is that Jesus decided to stay where he was. He's already told his disciples, or he's getting ready to tell his disciples actually that we're going to go, but he stays two days knowing what would happen. What's going to happen if he stays? Lazarus is going to die. As a matter of fact, chances are pretty good. Theologians believe, scholars believe that Lazarus was probably dead by the time Jesus got this, this note, this message. But Jesus stays even longer. You want a friend like that? How many of us have been in the position where we have wanted so desperately for somebody who could do something to do it right then, and because they didn't do it, they refused to do it, we just broke it off. We said, you don't love me. If you had loved me, you would have... There's something to be learned. There's something to be gleaned here. Jesus sacrificed the relationship, didn't He? He ran great risk at His friends whom He loved deeply at being upset and mad at Him and rejecting Him because He didn't come right away. For what purpose? Remember, we already found out why Lazarus is going to die. It's for the glory of whom? It's for the glory of God. And it's for the glory of the Son of God. So that what? So that people would believe. We had a good, good friend of mine that was on staff with me during my youth ministry days down south. And we had a gal that was quote-unquote in crisis. This gal was in our friend's um, small group. And I knew a lot of information because I talked with the mom. And this information wasn't privy to my staff member. And so my staff member calls me one day and says, we have to act now. Um, I just saw some stuff, read some stuff that this girl is suicidal. And so you need to, you need to intervene now and, and call um, Protective Services. I said, let's just, okay, hang on. Let me, let me take care of it. And I waited a couple days. And she was so mad at me. She almost quit. But she didn't have all the information. And what I knew is that this was a pattern in this girl's life. And that there were safety measures in this girl's life to make sure, and I'd already been told what had happened. But my staff member didn't know that. Much like Mary and Martha aren't aware of what's really going on here. Jesus has a pattern of sacrifice. So He stays, and He stays on purpose. He sacrifices His own agenda for the fathers, because ultimately this is what is required for redemption. Now why do I say he sacrifices his own agenda? Because you'll see next week that he weeps. We're coming up on that famous verse that everybody thinks is the shortest verse in Scripture. Jesus wept. In English it is. We're going to see where Jesus weeps. 
And it speaks to the issue of, of, of when we read in Hebrews 4, I think it's verse 22, where it says we have an advocate that understands us because He came, He lived among us. You've got sorrows, you've got death, you've got things that are crisis, and you're saying, God, what's going on? You don't speak to a God that doesn't understand you. Because we're coming up on it. Jesus wept. Why would He weep if He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? He doesn't weep for Lazarus. He weeps because He sacrificed His own agenda for the Father so that you and I would believe. So that He could pull off this miracle that was a miracle of all miracles that would leave people without any excuse whatsoever as to the power of God. It was necessary. It was a necessary sacrifice for the ultimate good. And yet Jesus, as we'll see over the next two weeks, makes it all good. But in the moment, we don't get that, do we? In the moment, we're scared. In the moment, it hurts. In the moment, we question, God, what are you doing? Jesus sacrifices His own agenda of His friendship and seemingly the commitment to His friends. Why? For God's glory. So that we may believe. Verse 8. He's warned that if He returns, He'll be killed. Jesus once again speaks in allegory. He talks about day and night. And, and what Jesus is really saying is this. Why don't you trust Me? You still don't trust Me. He says, we're going to go. And the disciples say, no, 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 no. If you go up there, you're going to get killed. It's a big discussion. It's a big hot topic. And ultimately, He has to tell them what? He has to blatantly say, Guys, you're not getting it. Lazarus has died. I have work to do. Are you coming or are you staying? But here's what's fascinating. He says in verse 15, And for your sake I'm glad that I was not there. Remember what I just pointed out, right? That the sacrifice was made. His own agenda was given up. Great sorrow to his friends. Why? So that we might believe. And Jesus says what? I'm glad I wasn't there to heal Lazarus in the moment. So that what? So that you, my faithful ones, those who are walking me, with me, might believe. And he says, let us go with him. And the last thing that you were expecting is Thomas. And Thomas says, let's go, boys. And not just let's go. Let's just go die with him. Do you have a friend like that? You see, when Jesus speaks, He inspires. And He inspired Thomas to death. To follow Christ means a pattern of sacrifice. And Jesus' words were so powerful to Thomas that Thomas was ready to say, guys, let's go. Here's why I find this fascinating. Who's writing the narrative? John. It wasn't John who said this. It wasn't Peter who said this. It was Thomas. I'm willing to speculate that those words were words John wished he had said first. And that's why they stuck in John's mind. So that two decades later, in the midst of a story he's telling, he just inserts this parenthetical thought. And he does it for a purpose, to say that Jesus, when He leads by example, and when He speaks, He brings you to sacrifice. Let me ask some questions on that level. Are you ready to follow the pattern of sacrifice? How do you sacrifice yourself so that Jesus might be glorified and those around you might believe and escape death ultimately. Jesus inspires beyond the power of death because of sacrifice. Because of His great love. O oh, death, where is your sting? I'm going to share with you right now a video clip. Remember Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to do this sacrifice so that what? So that you might believe. So that you might believe. There were massive amounts of skeptics in the day. 
He had just healed the blind man, an impossibility, and it stirred up so much controversy, yet only a few believed. And others wanted to explain it away somehow. They kept looking for ways to explain it away. I want to share with you a testimony by a doctor, a neurosurgeon, orthopedic neurosurgeon, and spinal surgeon, that died and had what's called an NDE, a near-death experience. She wrote a book called To Heaven and Back. Folks, I haven't read the book. There may be some odd things in there. I don't know because I haven't read it. That's not why I'm showing you this. I want you to hear the testimony of someone like Lazarus. That's what I want you to hear. Let's go ahead and show that. And now to an incredible story of survival. A well-respected surgeon kayaking in a remote South American river drowns. 15 minutes underwater after, her, after a horrific accident pins her to the bottom of a river. No air and no way out. Amazingly, Dr. Mary Neal did manage to make it out alive after she was rescued. But she says she had a glimpse of the afterlife that she calls one of the greatest gifts she's ever received while she was struggling under that water. Author of the book, To Heaven and Back, Dr. Mary Neal joins me now. She's an orthopedic spinal surgeon. Dr. Neal, thank you so much for being here. I, I want to start with this. Prior to this incident, were you a religious person? I would say I was pretty typical in that I was raised in a church on Sunday mornings, and I did take my own children to Sunday school. But I think it was typical that I never incorporated spirituality into my daily life. Did, so did you have, a, did you have a thought about an afterlife or a heaven prior to this, one way or the other? I'm not sure I really spent the time to think about it. I had four young children and a full-time job and a husband, and life gets in the way of thinking about spiritual things usually. So you're out in this horrific accident. You find yourself under a waterfall uh, kayaking, and you get It wasn't pinned. horrific. It was wonderful. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. It starts off kind of <laughs> horrific, though. Uh, and, and take us through it. What, what happens to you as you find yourself submerged underwater? Well, I was submerged, and the force of the water had me absolutely pinned to the front deck of the boat. And so I was not able to push myself out of the boat or pull the spray skirt off and exit the boat. And I tried a number of times before it became clear that I wasn't going to be able to exit the boat on my own. And I was far enough away from the shore of the river that I didn't think anyone was going to be pulling me out. And at that time, I gave my life over to God and truly and sincerely asked that God's will be done. And at that moment, everything changed. I was very calm and peaceful and felt great. And I had this very physical sense of being held and comforted and reassured that everything would be fine. My husband and my children would be fine, regardless of whether I lived or died. This is while you're under the water with no air, with you, you can't breathe, you're, you're completely submerged. You, do you believe you were dying? Yes. I continued to do self-assessment exams, and I knew I couldn't breathe. But for me, it was a very seamless transition. I had never wanted to drown. I had always been afraid of drowning, even though I'm a water person. And for me, one of the remarkable things is that I never felt panic. I never felt afraid. I was really very calm and continually reassured, even though I knew that I had no air and I knew that I was dying. You say you, you felt you, you, ro you rose up and out of the river, and when my soul broke through the surface of the water, I encountered a group of 15 or 20 souls who greeted me with the most overwhelming joy I have ever experienced. Tell us about that. It was fantastic. These were people, spirits, souls, I'm not quite sure what to call them. All the words sound a little goofy. But they embraced me and were so filled with love and joy. And they were people that I had known for an eternity. And they had known me for an eternity. And we were so happy to see each other. And they were 
clearly there to help me go down this path and protect me. And it was wonderful. They were exploding with God's love and grace. And they took me down this path that was so beautiful that I have really no words to describe it. And time and space had a different sense. And so I could rejoice with them. Simultaneously, I could look back at the riverbank and see my body being pulled to the shore and seeing CPR being started. And I looked back on my body and sort of felt fondly toward it and thought, gee, you, you served me well. And it was then that I truly realized that I must actually be dead. Wow. Do you, do you as a doctor, have a medical explanation for any of that? Where medicine ends, God begins. That's the real answer. Because this was not a dream or a hallucination, and it wasn't the result of a dying brain. This was more real than anything we experience here on Earth. And, and now, I, now, having been through it, do you have any fear of your own death? Oh, absolutely not. I wouldn't hasten it, but I am looking forward to going back when it's the right time. Wow. I have no fear. Dr. Mary Neal, it's an incredible story, and we're so grateful that you came on to share it with us. I do want to ask you before I let you go quickly. You say one of the, one of the questions that you feel you can answer in the book is, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Can you leave us with your thoughts on that? I would tell you that there's no such thing as something that's bad. As one very quick example, you called this a horrific accident. I look at it with incredible gratitude and joy. And we may not understand how a, quote, bad thing transitions into a beautiful thing. But I think when you truly have trust that that beauty exists, we can look, and it's unfortunately always retrospectively, but we can almost always look back at something and see all of the incredibly positive and beautiful things that have come out of something that would originally be called tragic. Yeah. Even you, going back as far as the death of Christ. I mean, we celebrate we've got, it. We've got to leave it at that. But, Dr. Neal, thank you so much. The book is called To Heaven and Back, and we'll be right back. Blah, 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 blah. By the way, I'm not an advocate of certain news agencies. It's just the, the clip I was able to find. So I don't want to hear, you know, after service. Blah, blah. What a whack job, right? This lady's nuts, right? Wouldn't you say she's nuts? Or would you say she's articulate, intelligent? Um, as I read some of the reviews by people that have responded, you know, one person writes very specifically. You know, obviously, it's the signs of a brain slowly dying. This person didn't have an ounce of credibility. It was just their opinion, and it's the line they've been fed so that they can be a skeptic. What did she say? She's a doctor. She understands how the mind works. She said, this was not that. Now, why did I take seven minutes to show you that? Because of what she said at the end. You said it's horrific to die. And then she said there are no such thing as bad things. That, that takes a while to unpack. Okay? There, there's evil in the world. And there are things that happen bad. But when it comes to relation to our story, Mary and Martha, again, look, and, and they're weeping, and they're saying, Lord, if you'd only been here, this wouldn't have happened. This is so horrible. What, what went wrong? And how many of us this morning... Is that our attitude? Or we know somebody that has put Jesus on the shelf because he wasn't there when we wanted him to be there. The way we wanted him to be there. We move out of this pattern of sacrifice where Jesus is willing to sacrifice his own agenda and that which is comfortable so that we might believe. What's the veracity of her story? I don't know, but it certainly matches what happens with Lazarus. If Lazarus could come back from the dead four days after he died, 
I think Dr. Mary can come back an hour or whatever it was after she had died. But for what purpose? So that you might believe. So that you might believe. Pattern of, of hope. Never give up. John eleven seventeen through 22 as we continue with the story. Now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met Him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is Martha. This is the flibberty gibbet that is busy, busy, busy in the kitchen while Mary is worshiping. We'll get to that in a few days. Four days in the tomb significance. Interestingly enough, it has to do with a typology of what's about to happen in Jerusalem with Jesus. Now, Jesus was in the tomb three days. One of the reasons I showed you the video is the issue of hope. A pattern of hope. Jesus wanted to leave the skeptics without anything to say. Within Jewish culture, there was an understanding that within two days of a body dying, the spirit kind of hovered around the body. That the spirit could then re-enter the body and suddenly something happened. And so it wasn't really like dead, dead, right? You guys remember Monty Python, bring out your dead, you know? You know, whacking the people, and I'm not quite dead yet, you know? It's kind of like that. And Princess Bray, yes. It's all through our bad comedies. Jesus is a pattern of hope. So he waits. Now do you understand why he waited? He waited so the skeptics would be silenced. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you are skeptical of what you saw on the screen? We're designed to be skeptical. There's got to be a rational reason, right? Jesus' friend has died. His sisters are crying, are screaming for Jesus. They send for Him. And He chooses to wait. Why? Because of our cynicism. Because of our skepticism. So that he might offer hope. Hope is its brightest when despair is full-blown. That's what true hope is. It's easy to have hope when life is great. But whatever that crisis is in your life, whatever the difficult thing is, he conquered death, folks. What can't he do? What hope can He not provide for you? Four days in the tomb, He conquered it. Martha didn't give up hope. She got up. Mary stayed in the house. Martha got up and ran out to where Jesus was. Even though Lazarus had been dead four days, she still holds hope. Did you read that? So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, which shows her humanity. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She knows what Jesus can do. But then listen to what she says. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Even though Lazarus had been dead four days, she still held out hope. Do you have that kind of faith in Christ? That's a pattern of hope. That is a pattern of hope that Jesus instills within the deepest cynic or skeptic's heart. Because once you experience the power of Christ in your life to change what seemingly was unchangeable, there is nothing that can hold back the hand of God. Martha understood this. We'll see next week how Mary relates to it. Do you want relentless hope? It doesn't come cheap. You have to be willing to sacrifice everything. Do you want relentless hope? Last point today, a pattern of life. Jesus is about life, not death. We've talked a lot about death today. But the death had to happen so that life might have victory. Sin brings death. Jesus brings life. Death is temporary. Life goes on for eternity. 
And that's the challenge that we look at today. My friends, have you changed at all in your attitude towards death yet? You heard an individual give a perspective that while she would not hasten death, she fears it no longer. She's ready to go. As Martin Luther said, she's got one foot up. One foot up. Death is the festival on its way to freedom. How do you get there? By understanding a pattern of redemption. By understanding a pattern of sacrifice that inspires you to sacrifice. By understanding a pattern of hope that Jesus provides that is relentless and unlimited. And then understanding that Jesus is not about death. He came and He conquered death on the cross. We celebrated and observed that today. He is about life. And this is the famous passage where He says, and I quote, starting in verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Let's see what she thinks about that statement. Martha said to Him, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She knew her theology. And Jesus said, "Mm -mm -mm. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he lives. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus, or she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Folks, when he says you will never die if you believe in him, that doesn't mean we won't suffer death as death is part of our curse here. It means we will not die spiritually. We will experience life and resurrected life eternally, forever. And we no longer have to fear death because death is just a mechanism to get to the better part. It is the mechanism to get to the better part. In closing, I ask you this. Does death dictate your decisions? Are you scared to death? With Jesus, we should be welcoming death. And that would cause me to live my life radically different. What about you? Make the changes in perspective to Jesus' redemption, sacrifice, and hope. Get your trust on Jesus, and life will dictate your decisions. There's a story that Brennan Manning tells in one of his books called The Empty Chair. Some of you may have heard it. I don't know if he was talking about himself, but he talks about a young associate pastor. It was right after he got this position. He was scared to death, and he got a call from someone in the parish saying, you know, my father's not doing well. Could you come over and, and visit with him and pray with him? And so he goes, and she welcomes him at the door, and he walks in, and she says, you know, he's upstairs. He's kind of a grouse guy, though, so just be prepared. And so he walks into the room, and here's the elderly gentleman who is suffering and on a, his deathbed. And uh, he's alert, he's cognitive, and, and the young associate pastor looks around the room, and there's, oddly enough, an empty chair right by the bed. And he turns to the man, the elderly man, and he says, oh, you were expecting me. And the elderly man looks at the chair, and he says, oh, that. And he just kind of chuckles. And he says, why don't you have a seat, pastor? You know, do whatever it is you need to do. You know, you can ask me any questions you need. So they had a good visit. And in the midst of the visit, he shares what the chair's purpose is. He says, you know, a friend of mine once was talking to me about prayer and asked, you know, do you ever pray? He says, ah, it's hard for me. I don't get it. I, I don't know how I relate to Jesus this way and, and why Jesus would ever want to talk to me. And so his friend said, why don't you do this? Why don't you take an empty chair and sit it across from you and just imagine that Jesus is sitting in this chair and just talk to him like you would talk to anybody else. And so this elderly man built this practice into his life. And it worked. And it opened up his prayer life incredibly. So now this young associate pastor realized who the chair was for. It wasn't for him. It was for this elderly man to have prayer conversations with Christ. He finished up the visit, enjoyed the time, and went back on his way. He got a call a couple days later from the young lady, the daughter, saying that her father had passed away and would he please come. And so as he entered uh, the house, he greeted the young lady and he asked particulars, you know, as you would, just 
trying to make conversation. She said, yes, he passed very peacefully last night. She said, there was one strange thing, though. When I walked in the room, well, last night when I said goodnight to him, he kissed me on the forehead, had a smile on his face, and I went to bed. I got up this morning, I walked in, and oddly enough, he was leaned over the bed and had his head in the chair with a smile on his face. You see, to have death dictate our attitude is to have our life stolen away from us. Jesus has the power over death. He is the resurrection and the life. I'm going to ask if the worship band would come forward and dismiss us today in a song. Again, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. If you want to fill out a card, let us know who you are and how you got here and how we can serve you and minister to you. Please do so and leave it at the kiosk as you exit or leave it with, uh, on, the, on the podium outside. And also, for the rest of you or, or any of you, again, you're all invited. One o'clock, our house. If you'd like to bring a salad or a dessert, please bring that. We're going to bring the food uh, as far as the main course. We are serving delectable hot dogs and hamburgers. We've broken out all the best stuff for you. And, uh, and bring your bathing suits and a favorite game, and, and we'll just spend some time together. Looking forward to it this morning. Let me pray over the offering as we prepare to dismiss this morning. Lord God, as we think about the pattern of who you are, as we examine that, I pray that it gives us and understanding that you will go to great lengths for our redemption. That, Father, you will sacrifice in order to make that happen, and that our relationship with you then becomes that which turns around and seeks to sacrifice ourselves as well. That you inspire us not to fear death. Lord, that you provide great hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because you are the resurrection and the life. And that, Lord, you are not about death. That the result of death is simply because of sin entering into the world, but because of you, and because of your power, and because of your actions, of which we celebrated and focused on today, we have life and life eternal. Let that shape our thinking, Father. Let us live as if death could happen at any moment, with one foot in the air. Thank you, Lord God. Use this offering to your glory. Bless it. Bless those that give freely and joyfully. To your glory. Amen.